This is The Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Hey now. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Hey, Dr. Jana, here we go, episode four. Yay, excited. Of The Science of Sex. Now, if you like what you hear, make sure you rate us, review us on the Apple iTunes store and let us know what you think about the show. That is super important because that's how more people can find out about the podcast. And also, we can find out what you like about the show. Maybe you put mm-hmm. on there, maybe more Joe, maybe less Jana. Well, I don't know. <laughs> it's I don't very think, possible. I don't think that's anyone's okay. ever going to say that. I'm not going to be offended. Yeah, you might be a little no, bit. No, no, no You okay. sure? Yeah, All right. Absolutely. Okay, cool. What do we have coming up today, Dr. Jana? <laughs> we are talking to a bona fide expert on female pleasure and orgasms. Oh, hi. And it's not Joe. Oh, oh I thought you were no. talking about me. It's Dr. James Faust of Concordia University. And we'll wrap up the show with the news that more countries are repealing shocking rape laws that you didn't even know existed. That's coming up. But first... The Science of Sex. Foreplay. You know, it's always good to practice safe sex, right, Dr. Jana? Uh, for the most part, it's a good <laughs> idea, depending on who you're having sex with. And- sure. Well, the FDA has made a policy change that will allow companies to make smaller condoms. Did not know about this, but the average American condom is about 6.5 inches, while the average American man is about an inch shorter, which often results to them slipping off. So, which is shocking to me. I mean, I didn't realize that there was an average size for Americans. I thought, you know, pretty much. What do you mean? Why are you, you making look at me like that? What do you mean you didn't think there was an average size for Americans? There's an average for everything. I know, but there's the idea that there was like someone set out to measure guys' penises and Absolutely. figure out like. Well, it's actually our old friend, Debbie Herbenick, that really? we keep talking about because she's done so much amazing research. One of the things, yeah, one of the studies that she published a few years ago was precisely that on the size of Americans' penises. I'm just trying to picture how that study went down. Did just a bunch of guys walk into a lab and drop their (laughs) pants and they... That's how many of the studies are done, not this particular one. This one was an online one, but they gave them very clear instructions of how to measure oh, their okay. penis and also provided a little like measuring tape that they could print out. I like to say out. little measuring tape, yeah. <clears throat> well, okay. Uh, <laughs> it, it wasn't a little, uh, very, very big. Very big measuring yes, tape. Yes, measuring tape that they could use to measure themselves. And the good thing about that study was they had additional motive to measure themselves properly because they were going to get fitted with the properly fitted condom. So it's almost like a custom-made. It's a custom-made condom that they were going to then be sent by the researchers because the follow-up study was, do fitted condoms work better? Are people more likely to like them? Are they less likely to slip? Are they less likely to break? Interesting, because and the reason this has all come up is because experts believe that this is one of the main reasons why just one-third of single American men use a condom is because of the fit. Yeah, there is a lot of dissatisfaction with condoms on the male side, and very often it is because people haven't really found the one that fits them in terms of size, and also because they don't haven't found the one that fits them in terms of material or smell or uh, texture or you know these other qualities of the condoms so it's good to explore but the size is definitely one of those issues and so this new company is now going to be selling something like 60 different sizes wow. six zero in terms of differences in length and circumference well wow. isn't yeah. it funny that in like clothing size we have small medium large and extra large and sometimes <laughs> don't like, but for penises we have 60 different now sizes there will be 60 right. yeah because you want to make sure it fits just right and the study that the follow-up study of, of the penis size study, yeah. right, that looked at whether they fit better, it, they did find that the fitted condoms were less likely to break 
especially for the guys who are on the larger right. side of things. Yeah. Although, oddly enough, they found that they were somewhat more likely to slip. The fitted condoms were more likely to slip off, especially among the average size guys. Huh. Well, luckily, it's not a problem with me. I'm, I'm married a long time, so I don't have to worry about that. And Dr. Jana, I'm not going to get into your personal life, but did you know one in four <laughs> couples regularly sleep in separate beds? One in four separate beds. Does that make you sense one, to you? Are you one of the f- one in four? No, here's the thing, and I know this is going to sound like a sappy romantic, but I feel weird when I'm not sleeping in the same bed as my wife. Like when she goes away for a couple days, like I have trouble sleeping, like I'll go Aww. diagonal on the bed. Um, Aww, what are you so doing? Cute. Stop looking at me like I'm no, a puppy that's dog. that's so cute. That's adorable. But any- after, after what, 20 years? 20 years, yeah. Wow. But the thing is, it's, it's so it's very weird when she's not there, and just imagining that there's one in four couples that aren't even sleeping together, and it turns out it's happening a lot. They say 38% of these couples say it's because they're having problems with their relationship so that's so that's the low end so 38 percent they're like you know they're kicking the husband out you sleep in the other room but then 60 percent they just like sleeping alone i think it's really interesting right that you have something like 60 percent of people doing it not because things are not no. going well but because they like sleeping alone because one person snores maybe yeah because somebody some people are not very good easy sleepers they toss and turn a lot some people like to sleep in a very cold room other people like to sleep yeah. in a warmer room so you can have those kinds of differences between couples that lead to this and even though for, for so for some people like joe they're yeah. like that is just so weird, weird. Yeah. that's a horrible impression of me but go on yes <laughs> But for other people, it can be kind of interesting in terms of keeping a little bit of that mystery alive. Mm. Every now and then you start wanting to sleep together, yeah. and then you can do that. I mean, you can do that anytime you want if, if you live in the same house. But at the same sure. time, you have your own space, so you give each other some space, some time off, a break from one another, which can have a lot of really positive effects. Look at you looking at the bright side of that. Oh, of course. No, I see this as a pretty good thing. I think I think actually more couples would benefit from separating every now and then and not sleeping yeah. in the same bed all the time. See, just knowing you for a little while, we've been hanging out together for about a month now. This sounds like the perfect scenario for you. Like to me, I envision you as someone who'd be <laughs> like, I don't uh, like having two separate bedrooms where you do your thing and then mm-hmm. I'll go sleep in my bed, mm-hmm. you sleep in yours. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I was married for seven years and in my marriage, we did sleep in the same bed when both of us were in the same city. Okay. However, we spent about 50% of our time in different cities. So my husband lived half of the time in New York and half the time in Colorado. Oh, okay. And then when he would be in New York, then we would sleep together. But then obviously when he was not in town, we would not be sleeping in the same right. bed. Now, that sleep, <laughs> thank you for explaining <laughs> yes. that. I understand you can't sleep in the same bed if you're in different states. But did it seem weird when he actually did sleep in the bed with you? Did you get so used to him not being there? No, actually... Because we had that separation for, say, two weeks or three weeks, and then you would be like, oh, I want him to come back. And mm-hmm. it would be nice to have him in the bed. And then after two or three weeks of sleeping together in the same bed, I'd be like, hmm, I, I think I'm ready to sleep alone now in my own Don't you have bed. to be in Colorado right about <laughs> yeah, now? Yeah, exactly. And so it was perfect. It worked out. Every two to three weeks, he'd be away. Every that's two awesome. or three weeks, he'd come back. All right. So that's with yeah. the ex. I understand that. <laughs> now, now that you're single, what are you going to do in a new relationship? I think I'm pretty committed to not ever sharing a bed full time with anybody ever again. Ever? I mean, okay, never say never. Right. I, I guess but I just might change my mind. But, but just I the think, fact that you're thinking that, that's yes. pretty crazy. I think I kind of like that separation. And so I'm going to try and create that unless logistical reasons right. prevent it.
Yeah. But if I can't have two separate bedrooms, I will have two separate bedrooms. Maybe even actually two separate apartments that are nearby. Actually, oh, that would be my Louise. ideal. No, no, that would be my ideal. I okay. want my own space. I don't want anybody else's dirty socks in my apartment. They can have those things in their apartment. And then, but it's close, so it's convenient. All right. So what's close? A block? Neighborhood, two or three blocks, <laughs> two or three blocks. Yeah, so that would be short, ideal. W- short walking distance. Yes. I mean, I just don't know how that would work because it almost be like you're not even a couple because that's part of, of the magic of being a couple. couple is the fact that his dirty undies are underneath your bed. No, that's like not that. the magic that kills the magic. Oh come on! Maybe your idea of magic is very different <laughs> from my idea of magic. It which sure is, is perfectly okay. All right, let's talk about keeping the magic alive for years to come. You know, <laughs> uh, you're still a young lady there, uh, Doctor Jana, but you know, senior citizens do not stop having sex once they become senior citizens. You know, that's a thing. I hope you know that. They don't? No. No, yes, no. <laughs> they continue to have sex. But there's a funny article. A lot of people don't like to think that, Yeah. Though. A lot of people, we oh, live in a culture that doesn't want to acknowledge older people having sex. Like, you don't want grandma and grandpa imagining yes. that. Like, it's hard enough for your, imagining your parents doing it, but then grandma and grandpa, Grammy, you mm-hmm. know, getting it on, yeah. it, it's but, not. But not they do. Yeah. But they do. A recent sketch on Saturday Night Live featured a woman who was very active in your, in your senior citizen's home, and this study just came out, how STIs are on the rise at senior facilities, which is kind mm-hmm. of ironic because this whole thing on Saturday Night Live happened. But apparently, <laughs> seniors they don't timed li- it. They don't like using condoms. They don't. They apparently they're like, "What the hell? Don't matter. I'm not gonna live. I'm not gonna be here around much. I don't worry about getting pregnant." Well, they're certainly not worried about getting pregnant. Right. Yeah. However, STIs are a very real thing, and you can get an STI at any age. Yeah. So I don't think having, I don't know, gonorrhea with all the symptoms, especially if you have a symptomatic yeah. form of gonorrhea, I don't think that's pleasant, no, no. matter how long are you going to be <laughs> around. Really? So what are the couple of the, just uh, <laughs> thankfully I don't know, what are the couple, some of the random symptoms for uh, gonorrhea? What would they experience? It can be discharged. That's not very pleasant. Oh, that's no. kind of foul smelling yeah. and uh, painful urination. Oh, jeez. Another one. They have trouble peeing to begin with. Yeah, can you, you imagine can, that? You can get it in the eye and your eyes can get in a pretty bad shape. So it's not a pleasant thing. Yeah. Although sometimes it can be asymptomatic, so you might not have any idea that you have it. But anyway, my point is, no matter what age, it's not a pleasant thing to have an STI. But yes, that's true. We are seeing increases in STI rates among senior citizens. And this is because older adults didn't really grow up in a time when condoms were something that they were taught to use all the time. We think youngsters are the irresponsible ones, right? They're having sex left and right and not using condoms. But actually, younger people are pretty responsible, especially when it comes to casual partners. They are very likely to be having uh, protected sex. But the senior citizens, you know, for them, they've been having sex with a long-term partner for a very long time, and they don't have the uh, habit of using condoms. They don't necessarily have them on them. They don't necessarily know how to use them. So all of these things are playing into them not really using condoms. And they also probably think, ah, that's something that young people get. Right. You know, we don't get those things at this age. And uh, that's just not true. Are your grandparents still alive, Dr. Jana? One of my, uh, actually, yes. One right. of my grandparents. One Can you imagine like them experiencing an orgasm? Oh, I would love, I would absolutely love to know that <laughs> my grandma is experiencing orgasms because she's getting old and she's pretty frail and in a lot of pain with a lot of you know, issues? issues of old yeah. age happening. And if I knew that there was this one thing that was giving her pleasure and allowing her to forget her pain for a few minutes, that would be amazing. All right. You're a strange bird. Uh, <laughs> well, speaking of orgasms, let's go ahead and talk to the Yoda of orgasms next. The science of sex goes deeper. The female orgasm has been a controversial topic of debate for over a century, with a number of open questions still puzzling scientists. If they don't serve an obvious reproductive function, why do they exist? Can all women have them? 
What produces them and how many different types are there? Are some of these types somehow better, more mature than other types? In October 2016, a group of psychologists and neuroscientists published a review article in the journal Socioaffective Neuroscience and Psychology attempting to resolve some of these controversies, especially the one of the clitoral versus vaginal orgasms. It's actually a great paper with some pretty funny subheadings like Round 1, The Return of the Clitoris, and Round 2, The Vagina Strikes Back. <laughs> and today on the show to discuss this paper and this topic more broadly is the main author of the paper, Dr. James. James Faust. James, or Jim, as friends call him, has a PhD in neuroscience and psychology from University of British Columbia, did a postdoc in molecular biology and behavior at Rockefeller University, and for the past 25 years has been at the Center for Behavioral Neurobiology at Concordia University in Montreal. He is incredibly brilliant and prolific, studying the neurobiology of sexual behavior from how fetishes are formed to developing drugs to treat female sexual dysfunction. And Jim is actually one of my all-time favorite colleagues to talk to. He has vast knowledge about everything on the topic of sexuality. I mean, I know a lot, or I think I know a lot, but I feel like a freshman in college when I talk to Jim. Jim, thank you so much for coming on the Science of Set podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So first of all, what prompted you to write this paper? Right? It's it's not an empirical paper. It's kind of a review slash clinical paper. Why did you write it? Um, I think that paper's been brewing in me for a very, very long time. Um, understanding the anatomy of the clitoris, both its internal and external anatomy, understanding the cervix, understanding their connection, their neural connection to the spinal cord and, and how that gets processed in the brain is something that has really um, been guiding some of the research I've done in rats, looking at female rats' ability to have orgasms and their ability to get that through external and internal clitoral stimulation. So the controversy around this, you know, it, it ebbs and tides. It, it comes and goes. We have, we go back to Freud, but we can go back before that. We can, the current controversy just surrounds the clitoris versus the vagina. And that's like, you know, surround, comparing an apple to an orange in the sense that it's not that the vagina is place number two and the clitoris is place number one. It's that they're both part of each other. And so there's a, there's a basic fundamental misunderstanding about the anatomy that leads to this dichotomy. And so I've been wanting to write this paper forever. And it was actually <laughs> actually the most fun I've ever had writing a paper. It is one of the most fun papers I've ever read, too. I mean, some of those subheadings, you know, the Star Wars. <laughs> and notice how the Star Wars subheadings go backwards, because that's actually a, an, an analogy to the fact that if we actually go pre-Victorian era, nobody ever had a problem with the idea that the clitoris was something that women shouldn't touch. I mean, there was never a problem uh, understanding what a female orgasm was, that an orgasm was an orgasm, and everybody had one. They didn't call them paroxysms. They didn't, you know, they didn't relegate the female orgasm to some vestigial male orgasm. It's like, it's like women had a sex drive, women had sex, women had arousal, women had orgasms, so did men, and nobody questioned it. And it really wasn't until the Victorian era where you, you saw this increase in control over over sexual expression, and especially over masturbation, right, where people just started controlling women and controlling their bodies just as they were controlling men's bodies, and especially with that self-pollution problem of masturbation, where, you know, as long as you gave women no information, they wouldn't know what to do with their bodies. Now, of course, that's bunk because everybody knows what to do with their bodies if they actually are okay to explore it, or at least not so guilty that they, you know, can't do it. So I think one of the things that happened was women's orgasm started to be called a paroxysm in the medical literature. And that's especially around the paroxysms that were induced by 
clitoral and vaginal, quote-unquote, internal clit stim that then ended up treating the, quote-unquote, hysteria that women had at the time. These are doctor-induced orgasms to These treat hysteria. These are doctor-induced orgasms, exactly, done by, a, you know, essentially a, a, a vibrator and vibratory stimulation or electrical vibratory stimulation. What was that supposed to do exactly? What were these paroxysms supposed to do? <laughs> the idea, it's kind of funny, even though it's in a sense horrific to think about it, but the idea was that your hysteria is because your womb is kind of running around the internal part of your <laughs> abdomen. And so in order to center it back on top of your cervix, you needed to induce something that would activate the cervix. And so these paroxysms mm-hmm. were seen as activating the cervix and making your uterus go tender and you know, stand up on end and now Jeez. be back where it needed to be. And of course, you know, she'd go home feeling pretty good about this <laughs> Right, these were just sexually unquote. frustrated women in some sense, and you gave them an orgasm, and they're like, exactly. that's and, good. And now you've treated their hysteria. <laughs> so, so really, what's the root of hysteria, right? And I mean, I think at the time, the reaction to this, which was a very pro-sexual reaction to it, came, interestingly enough, from Sigmund Freud and from his, uh, his inner circle, where they wrote that... You know, this vaginal orgasm is not a paroxysm. It's an orgasm, just like a male orgasm is an orgasm. And it's a valid thing for women to have. And it's not really done to treat hysteria. It's a, it's a natural reflex. So what is hysteria and, for, like, in, in today's terms? Because obviously we throw around the phrase, she's hysterical, but what, what is hysteria? What were they treating? They're essentially treating emotions gone wild. Okay. I mean, you, you, you could imagine somebody who's angry, somebody who doesn't really understand her body. She's stressed out. She has no idea why, you know, the two successive babies, the milk evaporated away and had to use a wet nurse. She feels like crap. She feels like less a woman. I mean, all the things you can imagine a woman in the you know, late 1800s feeling about her body, about her sexual function, about all this, right? So when you get to that point and you're angry and you don't know where to, what to do with your anger, what do you do with it? So that ends up being hysteria. It's good to mention that hysteria, even though we still use those terms in, in everyday usage, they are no longer a medical diagnosis of any kind. So good. Yeah. I mean, I think, it's, I think it's nice that it's actually been relegated to things that are funny. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I find that hysterical, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. okay, so Freud basically said, okay, vaginas do this thing where you can orgasm from they vaginal stimulation, and it's great. But what was his problem? Freud was basing that on the medicine at the time, which, of course, said that you add vibratory stimulation or you, you, you give women vibratory vaginal stimulation, you're inducing this. Now, could you induce this by clitoral stimulation? Well, Freud noticed in some of his female patients who were you know, able to orgasm with vaginal penetration and with vaginal stimulation, that there was something deeper, quote unquote, there was something like an orgasm that would erupt kind of throughout the body as opposed to one that was localized in the external glands of the clitoris. And for Freud, the idea of localizing something in a place versus having it spread throughout the body was the difference between what he called infantile versus mature, which from the German didn't mean infantile as in babyish. Yeah. It meant infantile as in a child's reaction or a, a child's nervous system's reaction to stimulation. So if you think of tickling, many things can tickle a child and the child giggles every time. And you're going to find a certain place it tickles. It's localized in that place. It doesn't necessarily go to the whole body. Now the child becomes an adult and that tickling ends up becoming torture or a sexual arousal. But now it's a whole body phenomenon. And so 
for Freud, the idea with the clitoris was that clitoral stimulation and clitoral orgasms would actually transfer into the whole vagina. Now, what did he base that on? His own, shall we say, inspired intuitions, because they ain't right. <laughs> the clitoris doesn't have to transfer to the vagina, but I think from a physiological standpoint, looking back at that, what he's really talking about is a woman becoming aware of all her sensations, not simply those of the external glands of the clitoris, but now the internal part of the clit that he didn't understand was there, the cervix that he probably didn't understand was there either, or if he did, it wasn't really an orgasm inducer, um, you know, along with the other sundry sites that you can actually induce an orgasm from, right? And he couldn't have known, we didn't know this really until Barry Commissarek's work, that, you know, all these places that induce orgasm end up in the same part of the somatosensory cortex. There's no way they could have known that, but and certainly not in Freud's time. So he set up this sort of false dichotomy between the clitoral orgasm as less mature because it was very localized and right. the vaginal orgasm as the real mature, uh, proper Mature orgasm. because it's not localized, it's right. more, more, more diffuse. Now, that found its way into modern medicine. But early 1950s, people were still talking about that dichotomy, right? And it was really Kinsey who kind of led the charge against it you know, saying, you know, re recounting how untold numbers of women have been trying to achieve something that is unachievable because for him, the vagina is a hole with an H, okay? It's a, it's a place that has nothing but muscle wall. Now, was Kinsey right? Well, you know, Master Johnson reiterated Kinsey's ideas because women were stimulating their clitorises mostly to get off. And everybody kind of knew that, but it was the elephant in the room. Nobody was talking about it. Share height, similar kind of thing. Um, and it really wasn't until the 1980s when the sort of, you know, all the hoopla around the G spot came back that, you know, you had the vagina essentially striking back, the empire <laughs> yeah. striking back, right? The go. idea that, well, no, the vagina's not a hole, it's got stuff in it, right? <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, you also have the idea that women can self stimulate the clitoris in order to achieve an orgasm being an incredibly liberating thing from the standpoint of the feminist movement. So you don't need a penis. You don't need a penis toy. You don't need anything. You need your hands to move your clit the way it needs to be moved in order to achieve an orgasm. And if you can achieve it by masturbation, you don't need a guy. So then you had the whole other kind of side of this, the other extreme of some of the feminist writers saying the vaginal orgasm is evil and we should all just focus on the clitoral orgasm, right? That's the, right. the vagina being the patriarchy. And it's the patriarchy. It's Freud. It's dominance over a woman's body. It's something that, in fact, if you take this to an extreme, you'll say, well, really? I mean, what is the vaginal orgasm? Something that men construct so that their penises can get off yeah. because the penis <laughs> needs to be in a vagina. Okay? It needs to be in some kind of an orifice, right? But better the, better the vaginal orif orifice because then you're really having sex in a Bill Clinton definition and not <laughs> just having some sex with an adjective in front of it, like oral sex or anal sex right. or whatever. You're having real sex because it's... <laughs> Penile vaginal intromission. So, okay, even if you buy that, it still creates a false dichotomy. Tell us why this is a false dichotomy. What is the reality with this internal and external vaginal and clitoral orgasm? Instead of thinking of the clitoris as a little penis or a vestigial penis or some holdover from, you know, what in that argument, what would be a masculine male default in fact, nature's default in mammals is female. So if you don't have any androgens or you do have androgen receptor, but point mutation, you don't bind your androgens, you're going to come out looking female. You're going to have androgen sensitivity syndrome, and you're going to, the default physiology is female. 
So if the default physiology is female, then that means the default penis is not a penis, it's a clitoris. And that what happens during development is the clitoris prolapses. Gets okay? bigger. Now, when you look at the clitoris, you look through it through Doppler or whatever, you'll, you'll see that the internal structure is exactly the same as the male. And so essentially the clitoris becomes the penis through androgenized development or sexual differentiation of a male from the female phenotype. So if that's true, and it's essentially got the same structures in it, which it does, then in fact, the clitoris is an organ all on its own, without a urethra in the middle of it. And it's something to be reckoned with. <laughs> I like the sound of that. Right? <laughs> and, and in terms of, well, in terms of, think of the, the power of the clit. I mean, in inducing an orgasm. I mean, men know the power of their penis, but it's almost like the power, the power of the clit is exactly the same. So, but most two-thirds of its structure is internal, hmm. not external. It's within the vaginal wall, and then through, you know, where your G-spot is located, you have essentially the base of the clitoris. And if you actually trace the nerves in, you find that there's a dorsal clitoral nerve that comes out of the glands, just like there's a dorsal penile nerve that comes out of the glands penis. And this G-spot also produces nerves that course in with that dorsal clitoral nerve into the main pudental nerve. And that nerve is carrying pleasurable sensations from the entire pelvic floor. So when you're doing your Kegels and loving it, when you're putting mild pressure on your clit in class while you're swinging your leg back and forth, whatever, all of that is being transmitted by the, by the pudental nerve that's going in the spinal cord, going up to the brain, going to the somatosensory cortex, and is registering through the somatosensory cortex and through your whole limbic system as pleasure. So, doctor, you, I want to catch it with something you said earlier. So just for a guy trying to find his way around a woman these days, um, there's two different kinds of orgasms women experience, the clitoris and the vaginal? So there's two different kinds? No, 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 no. Oh. What there is is... That, that's is, what we're trying to solve yeah. here now. There's actually, there's actually going to be... Several different kinds, okay? Oh, okay. But think of each one as a whole, in this case with oh, okay. a W, okay, as a whole entity unto itself. When you've had external clitoral stimulation inducing an orgasm, and you then have a different kind of orgasm induced by quote-unquote vaginal stimulation with external clit stem, now you change your metric, right? What you used to think was a 10 may in fact still be a 10 under your own manipulated circumstances, but may be very different as an entity from the one where there's something inside you that's also producing a sensation that now is summing with the external clit stem. Because the clitoris itself has most of its structure internally, the G-spot is part of the clit. So if you're having intramissive stimulation of that area, that can be sufficient to induce an orgasm. So basically the vaginal orgasm or G-spot orgasm is just kind of stimulating the internal portion of the clitoris from the inside of the vagina. And from that simulation of that spot, which essentially is the base of the clitoris. Why do it have to be so hard? Jeez because Louise. women are complicated. It's, it's <laughs> not that hard. It's not that hard. If you, if you take your, you know, your index finger and your middle finger and just sort of curl them up a little bit, imagine going into the vagina that way, curl them up. You're there. You're okay. right there at the base of her G-spot. Guys are taking notes right now. So that's which, is her, which is her internal clit. 
And if you're applying external clitoral stimulation, and not necessarily with snake tongue, but you know, you're doing it the way she shows you she likes it to be done, do that and apply the internal stimulation exactly the same way. She's going to love you to death. (laughs) Is there anything else in this G-spot area or G-spot orgasm aside from the base of the clitoris that is producing these pleasurable sensations that are different in in the whatever quote quote vaginal or internal orgasm than the external not really i mean it's really the base of the clitoris and there's also the cervix which of course is a few millimeters above that and that in and of itself can also induce pleasurable sensations tell, now, tell people exactly what the cervix is because not so everybody's going to know is at the base of the uterus so when the baby comes out one of the things that makes you oh. feel intense pain is the fact that the cervix is dilated up to 12 centimeters and the baby's head is popping through that right <laughs> um one of my so, lovers defi- described it yesterday as, it's the wall that my penis hits, right? Yes. <laughs> I said yes. <laughs> That's exactly yeah, right. It's that, it's, that, it's that little hole at the end. But the, <laughs> the problem with it is that we're not talking about baby's heads coming through. We're talking about gentle fibrillations of the cervix that happen with each intromission, with each thrust. And it's really, I mean, it doesn't have to be gentle. It can obviously be, like, not gentle and hurt. But when it's gentle, it, it doesn't hurt, it actually feels quite pleasurable. And that can sum with the clitoral stimulation. So that what a woman knows as a whole, with a W, a whole orgasm to be induced by, can be different for each woman and different even within sessions for the same woman because different things are being touched. Tell us, uh, it's an interesting story how we discovered basically the cervical orgasms. Well, yeah, that was done by Barry Commissaric and Bev Whipple at, at Rutgers University in New Jersey where they, they had these spinally transected women. So these women were, you know, had spinal transections because of accidents. Spinal cord injuries. Spinal cord injury, right, above <laughs> the area where the the three main nerves that serve the entire pelvic floor come in. So they couldn't possibly be having clitoral sensation. They couldn't possibly be having cervical sensation that actually transmits by the pelvic nerve. So they invented a device, kind of a vibratory But, but these women device. were still having orgasms, still reporting orgasms. Because they were having their cervix stimulated. So when Barry was activating the cervix, he was getting this orgasm. And the women were like, oh, my God, I didn't know I could do that. Well, it turns out that there's a fourth nerve, the vagus nerve, which thankfully doesn't travel through the spinal cord. The wandering nerve, right? It's the wandering nerve, the one that's involved in all sort of parasympathetic activation. So it slows your heart rate down. It, you know, does all the things you do after a workout. But it carries sensory input from the cervix. And it goes to the same parts of the brain that all the orgasm-inducing other sensory organs go to. So when you're getting your cervical stimulation, you're not only activating the pelvic nerve, but you're also activating activating the vagus. And the vagus is carrying that sensory information in. So you have the ability still to have an orgasm. So in layman's terms, these were paralyzed people, and they found a way that they could experience orgasm because otherwise they wouldn't have. Right. Wow, that's exactly right. Because right. amazing. Pretty much all of the other nerves that carry information yeah. go through the spinal cord, except for this thing. The vagus is the only one that wow. doesn't. That's awesome. And, 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 the, and the other cranial nerves as well, but the vagus is the only one that actually goes down to the through body. the body. Okay, so 
We talked about clitoral orgasm, which is basically the external clitoral <laughs> orgasm, mm -hmm. and the vaginal or G-spot or basically the internal clitoral orgasm. Right. And then we talked about the cervical orgasm. Now, people have been mentioning some other orgasms as well. There have been mm -hmm. corgasms, A-spot orgasms, oh, yeah. uh, some other like nipple or other areas of the body. Foodgasms, is that part of it? I, I think they're slightly different, different but I don't one. know. Okay, cool. We should, we should ask Jim. So, <laughs> so what's up with these other types well, of orgasms? Interesting thing about the nipples and earlobes is that they end up, and, and inner part of the ear, they end up going to the same region of somatosensory cortex that the clitoris goes to. Wait, same so that's a real deal? Brain. That's a real thing? The ear orgasm thing? Oh, sure. That's Absolutely. not like a myth? Really? <laughs> but, you, but you know, but the, here's the problem. You've got to spend enough time with the ear to experience <laughs> yeah, yeah. it. Right? I mean, two, two seconds on the earlobe isn't going to do it, right? You, you really have to really, focus on it. You need to really it. get into it, right? Deep nipple oh. stimulation. I mean, you know, you need to get your tongue going deep around the nipple, like on the areola, like go, go around in circular motion. And don't just do that for like 2.5 seconds on each nipple and say, okay, I did it. Now, what's wrong with you? you <laughs> Why aren't you nipple, coming? You didn't have a nipple gasm. What's wrong with you, girl? Or, or guy even. You know, it's like you need to be able to spend an, enough time there to generate enough peripheral oxytocin release to actually release an orgasm. Okay, so we talked a lot about the types of orgasm. Let me take a step back and ask a little more about the bigger question of why. Why are there orgasms for women, right? That's one of the questions that, that we've been asking. If there is no evolutionary benefit to the female orgasm the way there is for the male orgasm, you kind of need it for reproduction. So there were some suggestions that there are maybe some benefits to the female orgasm. There was that hypothesis, uh, the upsuck hypothesis, right, that basically right. if orgasm induces contractions in the cervix and the uterus, that maybe it contributes to, to sperm carrying transport. sperm right. upwards right. into the reproductive oh, right. system. Them. What's happening with the research, empirical research on this? Do we know if there is any evidence to support this? Well, obviously women don't have to have an orgasm in order to get pregnant. And that, that very fact is one of the things that people use as an argument against the upsuck, mm -hmm. right? Because if you don't need it, why have it? Mm. Okay? But there's a much more fundamental problem with the whole idea of this, and that is we're basing functionality on a male model. Why do we base female functionality on a male model? Is pleasure not good enough? <laughs> like, what's wrong with pleasure? What the hell is right? Everybody's got a big problem with pleasure. Oh, well, it can't just be for pleasure. Well, why do we take drugs? For pleasure. Why do we create art? For pleasure. Why do we listen to music? For pleasure. What's the evolutionary significance of that? Oh, well, pleasure, because we like pleasure, and pleasure makes us feel good and re reduces stress and keeps us healthy. And it's really funny that, well, the male orgasm involves expulsion of sperm and semen. Therefore, a woman's orgasm should have a reproductive function. I like well, a maybe... doctor who does a doctor voice. That's pretty funny. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> You're already a doctor, yet you put on a more doctor voice. That's pretty good. There you go. <laughs> well, I don't think it necessarily has to have a male reproductive function. Okay, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to have that. And That's in fact, a great it point. May have, yeah. It may have other things that are reproductively viable, like, for example, the release of oxytocin and pair bonding, or, you know, serving a mate selection function or something of that nature. Tell us a little bit about those reproductive benefits. If someone is good enough to understand your sexual anatomy and your sexual landscape as a woman, enough to be able to give you, quote unquote, give you, even though you're giving it to yourself, it's your mm -hmm. brain, right? But to give you an orgasm. Or contribute to your orgasm. Or two yeah. or three, or contribute in a reliable way. Is that not a keeper? 
I mean, especially compared to men who don't do that. So I know what you like. You like snake tongue because I like doing snake tongue. And you may not like snake tongue. You may like something else. Or you may like snake tongue. And dude is like, you know, doing circular motions, God knows, somewhere on your belly, thinking that that's what you're going to like. It's like, these, you know, ineptitude is not a reproductively viable trait in men, nor should it be, even if he's got a big car. So, you know, the keeper is going to be the one who not only doesn't flee your apartment after you've had sex, but stays and cuddles with you. All of that is driven by oxytocin. So oxytocin serves a bonding purpose. Now, we bond sexually. We bond parentally. And if you think of one thing leading to another, you know, then you're talking about co-parenting and raising children and doing all the things that you know, a sexually liberated person may not want to do but you know, in their 20s but might actually want to do in their 30s or 40s. <laughs> so if you're actually going to find someone to bond with and make babies with, I mean, that's like, that's like the end point of reproduction. So the orgasm can basically tell you who's a keeper because they know how to please you and can also help with the bonding process with exactly. that keeper. Is there any evidence to the upsuck hypothesis either way? Absolutely. Yeah, there is. And it, it, orgasms will induce fibrillation to the cervix. In fact, there's a famous episode in the old Nova scientific series where they actually had fiber optic cables, little fiber optic tubes that were put on a guy's penis while he's inside. So you actually lit up the inner part of the vagina. You see everything. You see kind of, the, you know, you're sort of riding the, you know, if you can picture this, you're riding the glands of his penis, moving in and out. And of course, the cervix is right there up close and personal. And you can actually begin to see an upsuck mechanism. That's must-see TV right there. Well, I think it's must-see TV. But, <laughs> but, but the cool part about it is that you see this upsuck mechanism beginning to take place. Now, he hasn't ejaculated, so there's nothing to suck up into the upsuck mechanism. If you can induce the orgasm while there's a pool of sperm there, then you're going to get your upsuck. Mm. If you have simultaneous orgasms, basically. Or well. even if you come and then, you know, she comes immediately after. Right. I mean, there's, you know, there's a way to do that, of right. course, and you just have to keep your wits about you. Let me ask you another thing. We're talking about Freud's, you know, mature versus non-immature, whatever, infantile orgasms. But there is this one lab that has been, research lab in, the, in recent history, that has been publishing research trying to prove Freud right, to prove that women who are having vaginal orgasms are somehow doing better in terms of their psychological health, in terms of their relationship functioning, and so on. What right. do you make of this research? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because uh, the, the, the person you're talking about is Stuart Brody, and he really swears by vaginal orgasms. You know, he's got a paper out that says he can actually tell a woman's orgasm history from how she shimmies her hips around and walks and vaginal orgasms change you into this healthy individual, whereas clitoral orgasms apparently don't do that, even though he really doesn't study them. And the other thing is there's another guy, a guy named Vincenzo Pupo in Italy, who argues that, the, you know, like, like Kinsey did, the vagina is a big hole, there's nothing in it, and the only orgasm is from external glands, clitoris stimulation. So you got these two men <laughs> telling the world of women out there what kind of orgasms are valid and invalid. And I, I just, you know, it would be a wet dream of mine to get the two of them together at a, like, I don't know, International Society for Study of Women's Sexual Health and get them to debate what kind of orgasm women can have. I, w I would love to see those two get devoured because in a way they're both right. And that's, so that was, I, I, I mentioned that in the paper and that's how I resolved it, that Pupo's right that most women have achieved orgasm from external glands, clit stem. 
although those data can go back to Master Johnson and Cher Height and and even even the Kinsey reports. Um, Debbie Herbenick at the at, at Indiana. Indiana University did a, a major redoing of Kinsey's original study and finds that there's a lot more women that are experiencing vaginal orgasms, i.e., internal clit orgasms, as well as external clit or blended, quote-unquote, orgasms. Um, yeah, I but, think if, if I made the, the new data from a nationally representative yeah. sample of women found that basically 37% of women said that they absolutely needed external right. clit stimulation. Another 36 said that they don't necessarily need it, right. but it makes right. it better it makes during it better. Yep. Uh, penetration. And then about 18% said that they did not need, right. nor did it increase... Right. any pleasure, all they needed was the vaginal penetration. And, and again, women are not only constructed a little bit differently per individual, but, you know, it's also what you know and how you, and how you discovered it and when you discovered it, you know, and, and it's not etched in stone. None of this is etched in stone because you can discover new things, you know, when you least expect it with a new lover, with a new toy, with whatever it might be. So I think that, I think that the idea that the vagina is a big hole is wrong, but the idea that the external clitoris is the easiest thing to manipulate is right. Sure. The, right. I, the idea that a vaginal orgasm is felt all over the pelvic, you know, all over the hypogastric plexus is true. Whether that makes you healthier is probably mm. debatable. In a, in a sense, they're both pointing out that there are different regions that can induce orgasm. And if I don't take what they say literally, or personally, but I take it to mean that they're focusing on different things, mm. then you resolve the issue because the issue is not clitoris versus vagina. The issue is the whole clitoris versus part of the clitoris. Right along with the cervix. Right. It's funny, though. Right. It does add to the mystery of the orgasm. For, like, guys, it's like, <laughs> we don't understand how it works. But even in science itself, it seems like there's conflicting studies on what the, the, about the orgasm, well, right? but they're not, they're not really conflicting if you, if you think that the anatomy tells you yeah. what is in there. Then, it, then it's not a conflict. You know, if a woman, you know, has only ever experienced external glands, clitoris stimulation and induces re reliable orgasms that way... That's how she's going to get her reliable orgasms, right? right? There's nothing and wrong with guy that. guy can go no. in there and thrust and do it doggy yeah. style and whatever. He's not touching anything interesting while he's in there. She knows he's in there, but if she's reaching under and massaging her own clit, well, guess what? She's going to have an orgasm. Mm -hmm. Life is going to be great. Well, the problem is every woman's different then. You've got to figure out who, who's a what and where it goes what. Yeah, that's exactly. the fun part. <laughs> and, guess what, and guess what that means? It means you can't rely on what your last girlfriend did to tell you what the future girlfriend's going to do. Not only that, but it means that you can spend an enormously wonderful time exploring her body. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's imagine, a great thing. And, and don't just put your dick in and wiggle around. Explore her body. <laughs> figure out what her body does. Do you think that all women can have an orgasm physiologically and anatomically speaking? Is it all about just not all the women who are struggling with orgasm? Are we talking simply about not knowing, not having explored, not having learned how to? I believe that's true. But that said, I don't think orgasm has to be an endpoint. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like you know, think of, it, of, of an inverted U-shaped curve, like an optimality curve. If you spend too much time trying to have an orgasm, that's like spending too much time trying to cook the perfect cordon bleu. You're not going to get it, okay? Mm. You, need to, you need to just do it. 
Explore your body. So, doctor, the woman who says, oh, my God, I just have never had one or have been in years, it's just because she's either not doing it right herself or her partner's not, right? It's not nothing well, wrong and, internally unless, it, unless it is, right? Well, un- un- unless there is. And, yeah. I mean, you know, there could be a number of endocrinological reasons, yeah. reasons she may have low androgen levels. I mean, there may be a whole bunch of, yeah. of you know, neurochemical reasons as to why or hormonal reasons as to why she can't. But once you check those out, if that's not the issue, you know, almost – I mean, I would, I would venture thousands of dollars in a wager to say that she has never explored her body. She was raised in a home which, you know, there was shame uh, involved in that, that it was icky down there. She wasn't taught that her body was, uh, you know, an inducer of pleasure, that she was taught instead it was just an icky, you know, the vagina's an icky place, don't touch it. Yeah, I've, I've seen somewhere in the anthropological literature, and I don't know if this tribe still exists or even if it's real or somebody, and an, an, anthro- an anthropologist invented it, but uh, supposedly there was a, a tribe where all women had orgasms it, because it was part of the rite of passage for boys to be taught by others and and yep. then tested on an on a slump, somewhat older woman that they are capable as lovers to give her at least two to three orgasms before they came and yep. in that society all women came at least two or three times and that's margaret mead margaret mead and the Trobrand islanders and yes that's exactly right and imagine that this wasn't even a matriarchy so this mm-hmm. is a this is a, an island of essentially an equal society. It sounds like a fictional city. It's like from Wonder Woman. This is a real so place. It is real, <laughs> yeah. right? It's a real place. It's an absolute real place. I mean, you can go to Samoa, right, where you have the Fafafine, who are essentially girl boys, who teach boys how to have sex with women. Mm-hmm. Okay, so boys all have their first sexual experiences with these essentially girl boys. And in fact, if you have a girl boy, you are like the best thing ever because your kids are, are going to teach all the boys what to do to women, okay? And it's all about women's pleasure, right? But it's not about the boy's pleasure. He's going to get pleasure under any circumstance, but now the focus is on how do I do her? And he has a girl boy essentially teaching him how to do this. And I, I mean, this is incredible, but it just shows you the beauty of having systems that have variety in them. I mean, this was one of my take-home messages in the paper. It's like when you have a male model of orgasm, It's essentially a penile-centric model. So everything that the penis goes into is built for him. Everything that he does to his penis is built for him. And her orgasm either doesn't exist or doesn't matter. And if it does exist, well, bully on you, but who cares because my penis got off. So imagine that men have had their ability for multiple orgasms sculpted out. The penis is prolapsed. Everything is about the penis. Men don't know the rest of their body from a hole in the ground. <laughs> Women, on the other hand, don't know their vaginas and their clitorises. They know everything else really well. But they know well. everything else. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the education that needs to go on about about the sensory pleasure that you get out of your genitalia and out of your whole body, for that matter, is something that I think sex educators and you know school systems that are bold enough to go where no one's gone before <laughs> need to really emphasize that it's not just all about, you know, getting diseases and saying no. It's about saying yes when you want to and getting pleasure. So you're like a total orgasm expert. Does that mean all your lovers always walk out of there really happy? Um, <laughs> not all the time. Is there a, like a Yelp page I mean, that has all your reviews a, on there? It's a, yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, but you know, it all depends. It all depends. I mean, because different women are going to know different things, right? So it certainly has been my experience that you cannot judge what one woman experiences from what a previous lover has experienced. And what you do to one doesn't translate necessarily into what you do to the other. It doesn't mean that you can't try things out, but it definitely means that you need to approach a woman's body and her pleasure with an open mind. So they're not all like lining up to get Starbucks. Yeah. They have their mobile app out and they're ready to (laughs) scan in. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I think, I I do think it's true that, you know, you just have to approach, approach with with an open and, and very creative mind. Right. And then feel what her body feels. Like if you can get your own ego out of it, feel what her body feels. If you feel things tensing up, you're on the right track. Right. If you feel intense up too much, let it go. Go back a bit, you know, and, it's, and just let you let her guide you. You know, we don't have a good language to talk about this with our lovers anyway. So let her body be your guide. So is your Twitter handle like uh, Vagina Whisperer? What, what is, uh, do, you guys, do you have like something like that? Do you have like a clever nickname? Because it sounds like yeah. you know the ins and outs about all this stuff. That, that would be funny if I even had a Twitter handle. But if I, get, if I go on Twitter, I'm never going to do anything else in my life. <laughs> right. Dr. Jim Fowles, thank you so much for being with us. Okay, Jana, take care. Joe, thanks, thanks for talking. The Science of Sex. Afterglow. All right, we mentioned this earlier, but across many countries in the Middle East and Africa, there are laws on the books that permit rapists to avoid punishment for raping, kidnapping, and statutory rape if the perpetrator marries the victim. I had no idea this existed. Since the summer of 2017, parliaments in Tunisia, Lebanon, and Jordan have amended these laws. Now, the latest set of repeals follows Morocco in 2014 and Egypt in 99. Now, these laws sound horrific. How did they even exist, Dr. Jana? This makes no, it makes no sense that it exists. I'm glad they're finally finding their way, but how did this even happen? Yeah, it sounds really strange to our Western minds, but this kind of happens because in many of these countries, female rape survivors are basically considered unmarriable. Wow. And as property of their fathers... This is huge shame and also a financial issue for their families and for their fathers. So this this brings an incredible amount of shame to the family as a whole, being raped Mm -hmm. uh, or being kidnapped and and raped because then you've been defiled. Your sexual purity has been taken away from you and now nobody else is going to marry you. And if they can't marry you, what are they going to do with you? They're going to have to take care of you for the rest of their lives and you're going to be this shameful reminder for the rest of their lives of having taken away the family reputation. Why would they protect rapists? I I mean, I understand a lot of cultures, the men have all the power, but it's still... Well, the only solution to have the daughter get married is to have the rapist marry her because he is the first one to have had sex with her and he is the one, the only one basically who would marry her. Now, is this is this mostly in Muslim countries? Because I know in some Muslim sex, it's it's extreme what the men could get away with. Is this is the same situation? Well, it's sort of a Muslim thing, but not really. So currently, these kinds of laws exist almost exclusively across much of the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. Still to this day, Algeria, Bahrain, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Syria, and Palestine have these kinds of laws on the books. But such laws are actually thought to have been inspired by Napoleon's French Code of 1810, which allowed men who kidnap women to escape prosecution if they married their victims. And actually, France itself only repealed that provision in 1994. What? Yeah, apparently. They must not have known that it was on the books. It must be one of those old laws that they're like, oh, wait a minute, we should probably probably go back and get rid of this. Yeah, probably, probably. Still, so it, it didn't necessarily start as a Muslim thing, but it seems like the Muslim world has taken it up and adopted it and 
actually kind of governs wow. using these laws. So basically, these guys would rape a woman, and then they wouldn't serve any jail time. Then they would just marry the woman. Yep. And this woman would have to spend the rest of her life and raise children and take care of the rapist, the person who had sex with her without her consent and violated her in multiple ways. However, it's important to note that repealing these laws is only the first step. In many of these countries, forced marriage of rape victims continues to happen unofficially, even though it's no longer the law of the land. It's still sort of the law of the community and it still happens. So there's going to be a lot more work that needs to happen in order to truly get rid of this practice in many of these cultures. Well, I mean, horrible story, but at least we have uh, wrapped it up with some good news. Yes. Right? And we should be back next week. And in the meantime, please don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes if you like it. I think they like it. They're listening. I hope they like they it. They were here for the whole time, so I'm, I'm assuming they weren't listening for the, they were glutton for punishment. Like, my God, this show is terrible. I'm just okay, keep listening. Okay, give us five stars on iTunes. All right, no matter what, right? No matter what. All right, cool. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepartavilla.com. Like us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex. 